Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Not too much to talk about this week, so I'll keep it brief, Uh, but as a reminder, if you like the show and you like what we do, tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to get our show into the ears of new listeners. And if you want to support the show or follow us on Twitter and Instagram, head to insidious.show. That's a website, and there you'll find links to our Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, uh, as well as all of our podcast platforms. So check it out. Again, that's insidious.show. And without further ado, this week's episode. Welcome to Insidious Inspirations. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and each week we're diving into the urban legends, myths, and murders that inspired some of the greatest and goriest horror movies ever made. This week, we're looking at the haunting inspirations behind The Conjuring 2. This is the true story of the Enfield Poltergeist. The Conjuring, directed by James Wan and written by Chad and Carrie W. Hayes, was a runaway success. Made for a budget of $20 million, the film grossed over $319 million worldwide. It was a critical success as well as a financial one, earning multiple Fangoria Chainsaw Awards as well as an array of other prizes and nominations. So, it's only natural that the creative team behind the first movie would try and one-up themselves with The Conjuring 2. Juan was eager to spend more time with the fictionalized versions of the Warrens from the first movie, and continued to break new ground. In an interview with Slashfilm, he said, I wanted to do something that feels different from a lot of horror movies, especially a lot of studio horror films. That is... Take the time to actually create these characters that you care about. Get to know them a bit more. The Conjuring 2 follows Ed and Lorraine Warren on another paranormal adventure, this time a brush with an angry spirit in the London borough of Enfield. Like the first Conjuring film, this sequel takes its inspiration from a very real case, earning it the little based-on-a-true-story stinger from the film's opening credits. So what is the truth behind this supposed true story? In order to understand the events that inspired The Conjuring 2, we need to go all the way back to Enfield in 1977 to take an in-depth look at the case that turned the life of the once ordinary, happy Hodgson family completely upside down. London in the 1970s was all about social change and counterculture. The Equal Pay Act passed in 1970 and was put into action in 1975. Contraception was made free of charge in 1974, and the Sex Discrimination Act was passed in 1975, preventing employers from discriminating against potential employees based on gender. 
Punk culture was sweeping across the nation, protesting, making music, and popularizing spiked hairstyles and piercings. Music and fashion were breaking down barriers all over the place. And Pink Floyd, Elton John, Kate Bush, Queen, and David Bowie ruled the airwaves. Meanwhile, during all of this social upheaval and iconic art, something strange was brewing in the sleepy North London town of Enfield. It all began in an unassuming little house on Green Street. It was home to Peggy Hodgson, a single mother and her four children, 12-year-old Margaret, 11-year-old Janet, 10-year-old Johnny, and 7-year-old Billy. So, how did this happy, ordinary family become the central figure in one of the most famous ghost stories of all time? Well, like many scary stories, it all began with a bump in the night. On August 30th, 1977, after her children had all gone to bed, Peggy heard a loud noise coming from Margaret and Janet's bedroom. She assumed the girls were roughhousing, perhaps jumping on the bed instead of sleeping like they were supposed to. When she went to check on them, the girls told her that their chest of drawers had been moving on its own. Oh, don't be silly, Peggy said. But the girls insisted. The chest of drawers had been shuffling towards the door as if to barricade the girls inside the bedroom. Peggy was irritated and exhausted from the struggles of being the sole parent to four children and was about to give the girls a stern talking to when suddenly she saw the strange occurrence for herself. The drawers were rattling, moving in the direction of the door. Shocked, Peggy tried the only logical thing she could think of. She attempted to push the drawers back into place. She told Channel 4 in an interview several years later, I pushed the chest back against the wall, but it slid towards me again. I tried, but I couldn't stop it. I wondered if my two younger boys were playing pranks because they always slept upstairs, but they weren't anywhere near the room. Not only was the dresser moving on its own, with no explanation, but the children were complaining of other strange occurrences throughout the house. Beds shaking even when they were lying still, and voices coming from other rooms even when there was no one there. There was no doubt about it, they needed help. So the family put on their slippers and dressing gowns and went next door to wake their neighbors, Vic and Peggy Nottingham. After seeing the frightened faces of Peggy Hodgson and her children, Vic came over to investigate. There, he was shocked at what he found. There was a strange, persistent knocking sound, and no one could tell where it was coming from. Vic told Channel 4, I heard the knocking as I walked in the front door. I went all over the house, just couldn't make out what it was, so in the end I thought, well, there's only one thing. I'll call the police. When the police arrived, it soon became clear that this was not a police matter. This was something else entirely. There was no burglar to arrest, no fire to extinguish, but a home plagued by an invisible force. You can't exactly slap a pair of handcuffs on a ghost or shove them into a police car. One constable by the name of Carolyn Heaps saw the supernatural phenomenon for herself when a chair moved across the floor on its own right in front of her, and she described the experience in her official police report. Heaps wrote, It came off the floor, maybe a half inch I should say, and I saw it slide off to the right about three and a half to four feet before it came to a rest. She was skeptical at first, but could not find a logical cause of the motion, saying, I checked for hidden wires or any other means by which it could have moved, but there was nothing to explain. 
The officers explained to the family that there was nothing they could do. There was no crime taking place, and well, there wasn't even a suspect to question. At least, not a visible one. Peggy couldn't help, her neighbors couldn't help, and now the police were at a loss too. With nowhere else to turn, Peggy had one last resort. The media. She contacted the Daily Mirror, and photographer Graham Morris visited the house to check out the supposed haunting. He would later describe this visit as life-changing. Morris waited in the kitchen as the children were brought in one at a time, some of them asleep. The last child to be brought in was Janet, and suddenly, as soon as she appeared, the room sprang to life with ghostly activity. Objects flew around the room, people screamed, and a Lego brick hit Morris over his right eye. Looking for an explanation, Morris moved into a corner of the room so that he could see everyone at once. No one appeared to be doing anything to cause the chaos. He captured several photographs of the pandemonium, including a now-famous image that supposedly depicts Janet levitating in midair, flying across the room. Margaret opened up to People magazine about the haunting at the premiere for The Conjuring 2 and said, We didn't understand what was happening. We went through periods where we just couldn't believe what happened, really. It's frightening. We didn't like to be on our own in the house or anything. After Morris's visit, the BBC went to the home in an attempt to capture some footage of their own. After leaving, the camera crew discovered that the metal inner workings of their equipment had been twisted and their tapes had been erased. Whatever they might have captured that day, we will never know. All of this media attention caused quite a stir and attracted the attention of the team at the Society for Psychical Research, who sent Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair to scope out the situation and report back. Guy Playfair later wrote about his experiences in Enfield in the book This House is Haunted. During his time at the house, Gross claimed to witness over 2,000 instances of supernatural activity. He reported, When I first got there, nothing happened for a while. Then I experienced Lego pieces flying across the room, and marbles. And the extraordinary thing was, when you picked them up, they were hot. I was standing in the kitchen, and a t-shirt leapt off the table and flew into the other side of the room while I was standing by it. These were, he believed, all sure signs of a poltergeist, or a type of ghost known for causing loud noises and physical disturbances, such as objects being broken or thrown around. That wasn't all he encountered during his time in the Hodgson home, either. Furniture tipped over and was thrown across the room. Fires ignited on their own and a curtain next to Janet's bed once wrapped itself around her neck. When the investigators removed all the furniture from Janet's room to see what it would do, a 60-pound iron fireplace was ripped out of the wall. Janet appeared to be the center of the poltergeist activity, who was seen levitating, thrown around the room, and who would fall into a trance-like state in which the entity appeared to be speaking through her. During these fits, Janet would speak in a deep, raspy voice for hours on end. The ghost identified himself as a man named Bill Wilkins, who had once lived in the house and had died at the age of 72, after a series of health problems. Janet spoke in Bill's voice without moving her lips and recounted the events of his death. Just before I died, I went blind. And then I had a hemorrhage, and I fell asleep and died in the chair in the corner downstairs. Bill's son later confirmed that his father did in fact die in that very chair. Several reporters captured recordings of Bill speaking on tape, singing songs, 
telling journalists to shut up and saying things like, I'm invisible because I'm a G-H-O-S-T. While covering the story for BBC Radio, Roz Morris joined Maurice Gross in the house to keep an eye out for poltergeist activity while the family slept. She was unsure of the validity of the family's claims, thinking it might be the result of a ploy for media attention or the children playing an elaborate joke on their mother. After the children went to bed, she and Gross heard a loud crash upstairs in the bedroom. She went upstairs to investigate and saw that a chair had been thrown nine feet across the room. She believed that the children would not have been able to do that themselves, if they were truly in bed already. Something had thrown the chair across the room, that was certain. While she was there, they also heard the strange voice talking from near Janet, as if it was coming from behind her. It would say childish things and swear, and she found the whole ordeal deeply disturbing. But was it really a ghost? Only Margaret and Janet knew for sure. Like with any famous haunting, many are skeptical that the events really unfolded as the Hodgson family claims they did. The former president of the Society for Psychical Research, John Beloff, posited that Janet had a talent for ventriloquism, which would account for the voice of Bill coming through her mouth without her lips moving. Skeptic Joan Nichol dismissed the malfunctioning tapes from the BBC, as well as the photographs of Janet supposedly levitating. He mentioned that tape malfunctions were common at the time and suggested Janet was just bouncing off the bed. British broadcaster Melvin Harris supported this theory, reminding his audience that Janet was a champion athlete at school. Anita Gregory, another member of the Society for Psychical Research, caught footage of Janet practicing her levitation and attempting to bend spoons. This, according to her, was enough evidence to suggest that the entire Enfield haunting was a hoax. Guy Playfair disagreed with this skepticism, saying that he was well aware of Janet and Margaret's attempts to fool him in gross. We would catch them each time because we were watching for trickery, he said. They would try to bend spoons, like Yuri Geller. They tried to hide my tape recorder so I would think the poltergeist had moved it. But they didn't realize it was switched on, so I heard every word of their plot. But there were too many other things that happened that could not be faked. Usually, there were too many witnesses. What about all the things that happened in empty rooms when the kids were somewhere else? What about all the things I saw and heard? And the police officers? Children couldn't have fooled so many people, all of whom wanted to find a rational, earthly explanation for what was happening. Janet herself confirmed that she had faked some of the phenomenon, but insists that only 2% of the occurrences were the doing of her and her sister. Others also pushed back against the skeptics. Richard Gross, the son of Maurice Gross, rejected the notion of a financial motive for the story, pointing out that the family never made any money off of the case. Maurice Gross had argued against claims by magicians and ventriloquists that Janet was creating Bill's voice on her own to trick the investigators, pointing out, to keep up this particular type of voice for any length of time without damage to the vocal cords is absolutely impossible. Janet doesn't let the skeptics get to her, and had said about them, I don't care what they think. I know what happened, and I know it was real. After the efforts of a priest and two psychic mediums invited to the house by Playfair, the poltergeist activity slowed down. Though life began to return to normal, it was never completely quiet. Janet claims that, until the day he left the house, her brother would say, There's still something here. 
She added her thoughts on the spirit, Bill, saying, I felt used by a force that nobody understands. I really don't like to think about it too much. I'm not sure the poltergeist was truly evil. It was almost as if it wanted to be a part of our family. It didn't want to hurt us. It had died there and wanted to be at rest. The only way it could communicate was through me and my sister. By the time the whole ordeal ended for Janet, the story of the Enfield poltergeist had earned its place as one of the most famous hauntings in recent history. Next, we learn more about Ed and Lorraine Warren and the other investigators involved in the Enfield case. But first, a quick ad break. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our show. You may have noticed by now that, during the entire summary of the haunting, the Warrens were not mentioned once. That is due to the fact that, though they did reportedly investigate the haunting for a brief period of time, Ed and Lorraine did not play nearly as large of a role in the Enfield haunting as The Conjuring 2 might suggest. In fact, their names are not mentioned in most official coverage of the haunting, except the coverage that is also promoting the movie. When Sky Living produced a television series based on the events in Enfield entitled The Enfield Haunting, the Warrens did not appear as characters. Ed Warren wrote about the case, and was quoted on it in Gerald Brittle's book The Dermatologist, where he stated, Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it. Therefore, when people tell me they don't believe in ghosts and spirit forces— What they're really saying to me is that they're not familiar with the data on the subject. Yet the data is there, should one care to look. In fact, much of it has been collected under such rigid conditions as to make a lot of other scientific research pale in comparison. For example, take a case Lorraine and I began investigating this past summer in Enfield, England, where inhuman spirit phenomena were in progress. Now, you couldn't record the dangerous threatening atmosphere inside that little house. But you could film the levitations, teleportations, and dematerializations of people and objects that were happening there. Not to mention the many hundreds of hours of tape recordings made of these spirit voices speaking out loud in the rooms. His words on the subject seem to indicate that he and Lorraine witnessed a great deal of unusual things at the house, but there are many that say otherwise. Though The Conjuring 2 is based on the true case files of the Warrens, It is up for debate how long they were truly there investigating, and how much of the haunting they actually experienced for themselves. According to Guy Playfair, the Warrens showed up uninvited and were only there for a day. 
Meanwhile, Playfair and Gross were there for 19 months sleeping in the house, eating meals with the family, and immersing themselves in the everyday goings-on there. In addition to Playfair's claim about the Warrens' limited involvement, there is no direct mention of the Enfield case on the Warrens' official website, and Janet has not discussed them in any of her interviews about the haunting. Though the Warrens were not there for very long, Playfair and Gross encountered them a few times. In an interview with Darkness Radio, Playfair said, I bumped into Ed Warren once or twice, and Lorraine, and I got the impression that Ed Warren was... well, fill in your own expletive. I wasn't impressed at all. He emphasized a belief that Ed Warren was there for a less than noble reason, seeking to fill his own pockets and garnish his reputation, rather than embark on a quest to defeat the forces of evil. He continued, They did turn up once, I think, at Enfield, and all I can remember is Ed Warren telling me that he could make a lot of money for me out of it. So I thought, well, that's all I need to know from you. I don't think he went there more than once. Nobody ever mentioned them. I mean, I don't think anybody in the family had ever heard of him until he turned up. Playfair, in spite of his heavy involvement in the Enfield investigation, is left out of The Conjuring 2 altogether, with the Warrens taking on the central role. Gross appears in the film but is severely downplayed, taking a back seat to Ed and Lorraine. This is a dramatic change from the reality, in which he was highly involved in the Hodgson's life and even acted as a father figure of sorts to Janet and the others. So, did the Warrens help the haunting stop? To put it simply, no. It seems, from all the available sources, as if the Warrens simply showed up for a day, took a few notes, asked a few questions, and then left the Hodgson family and the other investigators to handle it. Janet herself attributes the reduced poltergeist activity to a 1978 visit from a priest. Several other dramatic changes were made in the story's transition to the silver screen. The figure of the crooked man, as well as the inclusion of the demonic man, were complete fabrications of the movie's screenplay. The haunting in Enfield was believed to be a poltergeist, but the Conjuring Universe version of it changes the supernatural entity to one that is explicitly demonic in nature. In one scene, crosses are turned upside down on the walls of the home. This never happened in real life, nor were there any exorcisms, a demon named Veloc, or a haunted zoetrope toy. Perhaps it's not as exciting to end a movie with, and then it all just sort of calmed down and things were pretty much fine after that. But, Lorraine Warren dramatically condemning a demon back to hell is a pretty large departure from the source material. Though the film may be based on a true story, there's not much truth left in the version of the story that makes it onto the screen. There was a family in Enfield that experienced a haunting. Some of the details of that haunting are left intact. And Ed and Lorraine Warren were there at some point. In terms of overlap between the real story and the film, that's about it. Janet has discussed what a difficult time the whole ordeal was for her and her family. I was bullied at school, she said. They called me Ghost Girl and put crane flies down my back. I'd dread going home. The front door would be open, there'd be people in and out. You didn't know what to expect, and I used to worry a lot about Mum. She had a nervous breakdown, in the end. Janet also spent some time in a psychiatric hospital due to the trauma of the haunting and the national media attention. She was not aware that James Wan and the Conjuring team were adapting the story that had once had such a grip on her life and her well-being. I wasn't very happy to hear about the film. I didn't know anything about it, she says. It really upset me to think of all this being raked over again, 
she acknowledges, It was an extraordinary case. It's one of the most recognized cases of paranormal activity in the world, but for me, it was quite daunting. I think it really left its mark, the activities, the newspaper attention, the different people in and out of the house. So, where are they now? Janet's brother, Johnny, passed away from cancer, and her mother Peggy also passed away in 2003. Janet left home at 16, leaving the house and all of its bad memories behind. The two primary investigators, Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair, have since passed away in 2006 and 2018, respectively. In spite of Janet's initial negative feelings about the project, now Janet Winter and Margaret, now Margaret Nadine, attended the premiere of The Conjuring 2 in Los Angeles on June 7, 2016. What became of the haunted house? Well, after the Hodgson's family moved out, Claire Bennett moved into the house with her four sons. She told the Telegraph, I didn't see anything, but I felt uncomfortable, indicating that something still lingered there. There was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like someone was looking at me. After her son woke up in the middle of the night to the sight of a man walking into his room, he told his mother that they had to move. The next day, the Bennett family moved out. Today, the house stays relatively under the radar, occupied by someone who prefers to stay out of the spotlight, and shield her children from the house's dark past. According to a report by My London, the unnamed current resident of the infamous house on Green Street says it used to be haunted, but it is not anymore. So it seems that Bill, if his ghost was ever there in the first place, has finally decided to get some rest. Our host is Nicole Goodnight. Tonight's writer was Addison Peacock. Our editor-musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit insidious.show. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.